So Christmas comes and our troubles will be out of sight. You ever thought about that? Any of these songs that we love to listen to at this time of year, right? After the snowstorm this week, wasn't it amazing how cold it was? So the, the, the trees stayed covered for like two days. It was just gorgeous. And you get your list out on your phone and you plug in your playlist and you listen to all these songs. They make you feel so good. And then I'm listening to it and I'm like, oh, Christmas. And it's going to take all my troubles away. One of the great challenges of the Christmas season is this tension, though, right? The contrast between the light and the dark. Between the celebration of the joy of the season and the very real sorrow that many of us have in our lives. Between the glow of decorations on our trees and the shadows in our hearts. Between the happy faces, the happy cookies, happy songs and the very real pain and suffering we experience. Between the glad tidings of peace on earth and the very real chaos and confusion and evil we see on the news daily or even confront in our own lives. Between the hope of Christmas and the profound hopelessness that often defines so many lives. For our lives are not often as shiny and bright as we often portray them to be, are they? For every vision of sugar plums dancing in our heads, there are the realities of disease and illness. Just behind every dream of silent nights, there are nightmares of shattered expectations. And veiled behind every wish for joy, there are broken relationship, deep sorrow. And we know this right here in our own little community, don't we? In fact, I'm revisiting the story of the advent of John the Baptist in honor of my friend Rich. This is for him and for anyone here in our community. This time of year when it's supposed to be all about joy and our troubles just magically go away. And certainly in the world around us, there's much darkness. What happens is some of us have very little to celebrate at this time of year right now. Maybe some of us have lost our jobs or we just struggle perennially to get by financially. Maybe some of us are true victims of others' inhumanity. Or maybe we just always have a sense of hurt, a sense of feeling lost and we don't know why. Maybe some of us are in the midst of an especially long season of despair or anxiety or maybe even lack of faith. Maybe we just wish our lives were different. That maybe we had just made better choices through the years. Had better luck, had an easier go of it. Maybe some of us are just just can't deal anymore. But whatever it may be, the reality Christmas stands in stark contrast to the dark messiness of our lives, doesn't it? Here's the thing, though. The story of the birth of God in Scripture says this. It is exactly our messes, our pains and hurts, our doubts, our sufferings, our struggles and confusion, our broken relationships, our hopeless situations. These things are the very mangers God chooses to be born. 
We tend to think God is more like Santa, don't we? That's a classic Western theology. We have to get the house ready. We have to decorate the tree. We have to make the cookies and leave out the glass of milk. We have to wrap the presents. We have to make things perfect before he comes. We have to vacuum and dust. And we have to get on the nice list. Or he's not going to come to our house. But here's the problem with that. That's not biblical theology. That's like Christmas song theology that somehow has made its way into the church. It's very damaging theology. As all of us at some level are still struggling under that theology that we have to somehow appease God. But here's the thing. The good news is The Bible says that God comes to the mess. He comes to where we are decidedly not ready, decidedly not joyful, decidedly not peaceful, because he loves us, because he has favor on us, because into darkness he brings true light, because to the hopeless he brings true hope. And this is why I love the story of the advent of John the Baptist so much. Zacharias and Elizabeth, at first glance, seem to have a perfect life, right? Have it all together. I mean, come on, she's a descendant of Aaron. That's a big deal. And he's a high priest, a a priest, not a high priest, he's a priest who is very well connected, and he has just won the priestly lottery. So let me give you a little background on that so we can understand just how great their lives look. So there were too many priests for the jobs that had to be done in the temple. So how it worked was on a lottery type of system to get those jobs. So all the priests were divided into 24 groups, and each group were to go to the temple for two weeks out of the year, non-consecutively, a week here and a week there. And when the groups got there for their week, lots were drawn for the various jobs that needed done during that week by the priests. Not all the priests even got jobs. Okay? To win the job of lighting incense in the holy place, which some scholars think you could only do that once in your life. You could never win that job again. And if you did, they had to draw lots. That's winning the priestly lottery, and that's what Zacharias was doing. He was serving as a priest. He was chosen, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. He won the priestly lottery. Right? Luke tells us they were highly moral people, obeying the law within strict, with strict discipline. And all of this paints a very neat and tidy picture of a family that has it all together from the outside, doesn't it? The perfect place for God to come. A courier and Ives print. All their troubles are far away because it's Christmas. Except if we read a little closer. And this is what we have to get good at when we're reading the Bible. This is what in, in the Jewish tradition is called midrash. It's reading between the lines. It's reading between the words. It's, it's trying to fill in the empty spaces of the story. One of my favorite theologians says, this is dancing with the text, trying to figure it out. And so here, if you really dance with this text and you listen closely and you read it closely, you find out, oh, wait a second, their lives are as messy as our lives. And God came to them. See, and the first big hint of this is Elizabeth's reaction to her pregnancy. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace. Who knows what it is to be in disgrace? Anyone here? I'm not looking for hands. I'm not looking for your story, but disgrace, right? 
you've ever been in disgrace for a day or a week, you know, you do something so profoundly horrible. And I'm not talking about embarrassment. You know, that's, embarrassment just happens. That's just, you know, you do something you're embarrassed about. I'm talking about disgrace. If you've ever lived with disgrace for a day or a week, it is not fun. That's, bless you, Reuben. It is not fun at all. At all. Well, here is Elizabeth. She has suffered disgrace her entire adult life because she doesn't have kids. See, today, people who want babies and can't have them, it's incredibly sorrowful. It's difficult. It's hard if you know anyone that wants a baby and hasn't been able to have them. And then when modern medicine fails in being able to give them a baby, it's really painful. But in our society, it's not a disgrace not to have kids. Back then, it was all of that emotional pain, and on top of it, it was a catastrophe. Now, but here's the thing. Let me make a quick side note, because this is important. I am not comparing suffering. That is important to know. Comparing suffering is never an adequate answer to the human condition. And if you're one of those people that try to make yourself feel better that way, I'm telling you, don't do it. It won't get you far. And we all do it. I just did it this last week. I was having a horrible day. And in my quiet time, I was just like, man, David, get over yourself. Think about what Rich is going through. Okay, so that, that, that what, feels better for like, you know, 30 seconds? It's like taking an aspirin for a broken leg. Yeah, it might take the pain off, but it doesn't fix your leg. Never compare suffering. Whatever we are suffering with is real and it's legit. And you should never feel bad about what you're suffering with. Okay? So whatever you are suffering with, it's a big deal. I'm only doing this because I want us to understand just how messy Elizabeth and Zachariah's life is. Okay? Not having kids, complete catastrophe on many levels. First of all, it's just that emotional suffering of wanting to have kids. Second of all, it was a financial catastrophe in their culture. Because kids in that time and place were the 401k plan. Seriously. I told my kids they are because we're going back and I'm living like the Bible lives, so you're my 401k plans. <laughs> but back then, they were really 401k plans. They were assisted living homes. They were nursing homes. And people who didn't have kids lived with the constant fear that as soon as they could no longer take care of themselves, no one would be taking care of them. That's a catastrophe. Further, this is a catastrophe because in Jewish theology at that time suggested that if you did not have kids, you did something wrong. And God was visiting his punishment on you and, his, and, 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 and judgment on you. Okay? So religiously, socially, Elizabeth, that woman that walked into a community gathering or into a house party and people were really nice to her face and then talked about her behind her back. That's who Elizabeth was because she didn't have kids. Okay? It's a catastrophe. She lived in disgrace her whole life. This is, this is the woman who God visited. Zacharias, while enduring the same disgrace, also seemed to have fallen into a bit of hopelessness. Maybe even a lack of faith. A hint of this is his response to the angel's decree that they're going to have kids. He says, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. This isn't, oh angel, please help me understand this. This is, you're out of your mind. And I don't think you're an angel at all. You're dumb. My wife can't possibly have a kid and I can't make a kid. That's what this is. I think maybe he didn't believe the angel because he had long ago stopped believing, stopped hoping, stopped praying for a son. Now that's their personal little lives. Now, to make their lives to really understand even more messy, they lived under Roman occupation. Now, we talked about this a little bit last week, that the empire was really good for 
one or two percent of the people, maybe up to five percent of the people. So the Roman Empire brought peace to the known world at the time, and it was amazing what they did, except they did it through fear, right? So they did it through killing you if you didn't agree to be at peace with them. And in this part of their empire, these were people that didn't want to be at peace with them. And so it was constantly not good for the majority of people where the empire was. There are stories from history that Romans crucified more than a thousand people at a time in villages in, in Israel. Now I want, have, and look, don't just let that pass over you. Oh, they crucified a bunch of people and just let it go. Like it's, I, I, honestly, I'm sorry it's Advent. I'm bringing you here. I want you to think about this. Crucifixion is something the Romans perfected for one reason. It was the best way to torture someone but keep them alive and keep them conscious while they died. It took three to four days for most people to die from crucifixion. So now I want you to think about this. You're in a village, all right? Think of all the people you know in your life. Well, in those days, you would have lived with all those people that you know and work with and love. And one day, four or five guys decide they hate living under the Roman Empire and they do something stupid against the empire. And the empire comes in, and before nightfall, over a thousand of your friends and family are hanging on crosses, dying. Think about that. This is where they lived. This was the time they lived in. You know, I was thinking about that this week because I really wanted to help people understand how messy and ugly their lives were. And it dawned on me, it's like, just think of the logistics of that. No wonder they, there was peace throughout the world. They had the resources, they had the knowledge, they had the ability and the manpower and the logistic planning to crucify a thousand people at one time. That's absurd. This is their life. This is where they lived. Now, their immediate ruler was King Herod, who had been set up by the Roman Empire. Herod was a monster. Herod killed whoever he wanted, whenever he wanted. Maybe I should start playing that Christmas song again, right? He was a nightmare, his own family. We, in Christendom, no, we, we call what one of the things he did the massacre of the innocents. That's when he killed all the babies in Bethlehem around the time of Christ's birth. But how, this, how is this for madness? As King Herod got older in life, he had some of the most prominent Jews in his area rounded up and put in prison. And he gave his guards explicit directions. When I die, you kill them all. He did that so people would mourn when he died. This is their life. This is their suffering. This is their messing. Messiness. Zacharias and Elizabeth did not lead lives from a curry or an eye sprint. Their lives were messy. They were difficult. And they were full of suffering and hopelessness. And that is exactly where God chose to come and visit his faithfulness. This is where God chooses to come and fulfill his promises and insert hope into their hopelessness. And I think Zachariah's response to his son's birth can help us understand what it is God is bringing into our lives. For we need to be careful here. Because the wrong expectations here are what caused so many of our problems in the first place. What caused so many of us to leave our religion and leave our faith and walk away from it all. 
because we get these expectations that we still think of God as just a perfect human being or a perfect superhero, a being that's just out there and if we just somehow get the right equation, he's just gonna take all our problems away. And then we realize that doesn't happen. And you realize you live your whole life with this profound faith and, and you write Christian books and you do everything for others and you get pancreatic cancer. Or you're a world famous Christian musician that is the most beautiful human being ever and you stop on the side of a highway one night to help someone who has a flat tire and an 18 wheeler kills you. And all of a sudden what's true is true only until it's not true anymore. And this whole idea that if we just get the equation, make God, he's going to just take, it's Christmas time, our problem's going to go away. And as long as this is the God we're crying out to and believe in, it's only a matter of time until our faith crumbles. For the world to be a world, it has to be free to be a world. That's the world God made, and he loves it so much and loves us. horribleness of it, the suffering, the pain he hates as much as we hate. But he's not a superhero that's just going to change things at the whim because we make him happy one day. But he always loves us. Oh, here's a mama. Here's a mama call. Oh, honey, it's okay. See, for the world to be a world, it has to be free to be a world. And little babies have to be free to miss their mom and daddy and cry, and mommy and daddy can't always stop them from crying. So what does Zacharias say? He has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. This is so important. The hope God gives is not predicated on our current situations being changed magically. The hope God gives is not dependent on our suffering being ended right here and right now. It's different than that. It's bigger than that. Think about it. If God was a superhero, would you really want to worship him? But if God is so much bigger, now that's worth worshiping. God is talking about hope in the midst of our hopelessness. In the midst of it. He's talking about hope based on the faithfulness of God himself. So see, here's what happens. God promised from the beginning of time he would come, and he came. And when he was here, he said, I'm going to come again. That's the hope we get, because he was faithful to come once, he'll come again. And here's the thing, every time you and I join him in what he's doing in the world, he comes. Whenever we join God in creating, in loving, in forgiving, in showing grace and mercy, on others, God comes. Whenever we experience 
peace that we can't explain that is above and beyond our circumstances, God comes. We are his hands and his feet and his body coming in the world when we join him. He is inviting us to participate in what he's doing in the world. It's also the hope of knowing our own sins are forgiven. You know, all those times we miss the mark in life, all those times we do something that a day later, or a month later, or a year later, or a decade later, you go, oh my gosh, what was I thinking? How did I do that? Those are forgiven. It doesn't matter to God. God isn't keeping a list and checking it off. That's another Christmas theology. That's not biblical theology. He loves us. As we are. As we are. It's the hope of knowing that nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from that love. Nothing. Do you ever, do you ever remember something you did and get so horrified at that memory that you couldn't imagine if, if your friends now knew or your family now knew you ever did that? We don't have to think that way about God. He knows, and he still loves us. He gets it. The hope that he gives is that our suffering now is somehow part of the suffering of God that saves the world. That's the great Paschal mystery that we explore here a lot. We are part of the suffering that saves the world. And if we can just see that, if we can understand that, I think it changes how we understand our suffering. Because see, if God is in and around and above and below us, if we live and move and have our being in God, then when we suffer, God is suffering. And God's suffering is what saves the world. See? So from the silliest bit of suffering, like when you go to your dentist and you get a root canal, <laughs> to pancreatic cancer, to everything in between that we suffer from, if we have faith to see this is God's suffering that is saving the world. That's hope. None of our suffering is useless or in vain. That's hope. It's the hope that suffering now is not the final chapters of our lives. Our stories don't end in the suffering. That's the hope God gives. We get so caught up in this moment right now that this is it. No, this is just another page in the story of our lives that goes on and on and on. And someday we'll be going on and on on the far side of suffering. That's the hope. Isn't this exactly the great mystery Jesus was getting at in Matthew chapter 5? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, heaven isn't on the far side of us being sad. We're in it while we're sad, if we have faith to see that. I think that's why that man in the gospel said, I believe, help my unbelief. There's a prayer 
for every day. I believe, help my unbelief. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. See, the hope God brings that Zacharias talks about is this hope here that St. John talks about. God's making all things new. Love will win. God said, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. How many of us are afraid? Don't be afraid. I am the first. I am the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and see, I'm alive forever and ever, and I have the keys to death. The one who has the keys to death is the one who loves us. Always. The one who brings hope into the messiness of our lives. The one who was born in the mangers of our suffering. Patricia Gillespie writes, where is it that we are truly needy? Where is our life broken? Where do we feel inadequate and unprepared for life? Where are the empty spaces? Where do we hunger? Maybe it's loneliness or alienation, poor health or financial stress, depression or overwhelming fears. These are the mangers of our lives where God is asking to be born. Listen carefully to the broken places of our lives. See, I think we've been doing this Christianity thing wrong for so long. And we think God is being born when everything is wonderful and peaceful and great and super and fantastic. And no, that's not where God is born. He's born in a cave that's messy and filled with animals and broken people. Ugh. Maybe if we can just listen quietly and we will hear God saying, let me be born here. And if we let God be born, God, God, this is why, did you ever wonder why Jesus said, you'll do greater things than these? And we go through our lives going, well, I don't do anything like Jesus. Let him be born. I don't think Jesus was lying. Maybe it's just we think greater things are being a superhero, and God's not talking about being a superhero. He's talking about living and loving in the world like Jesus did. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. Today, a Savior has been born. For us. For us. Thanks be to God. Amen.
longs for a little bit of hope Oh, come, oh, come, Child prays for peace on earth And she's calling out from a sea of hurt Oh, come, oh, the suffering 